The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. In the name of Jesus, the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, writes the same exact thing. He says, for there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men. The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. One God, one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ, the one who gave himself as a ransom. Since Jesus died and was buried and ascended to the Father throughout the history of the church, there's been a, there have been recurring attempts at what's, at what's called Christian syncretism. If that's a word you're unfamiliar with, it's a really simple concept. It's the idea of taking pieces and parts of Christianity and and sort of adding them on to some other religious belief system and calling it Christianity. It's the idea that we can believe whatever we want to believe and sort of cherry pick parts of Christian faith and just sort of patch them on top of what we already embrace and fancy ourselves Christians. It's happened throughout history all around the world. It's happened on the missionary frontier as missionaries go to indigenous tribes that often are sort of embroiled in a natural religion who will then sometimes take Jesus and just add Jesus on to 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 the many gods that they worship in nature and other places and sort of subsume Christ within their sort of natural religion and fancy at Christianity. It happens in the polytheistic religions of the world, Hinduism, Buddhism, where, where a pantheon of gods is worshipped and, and Jesus is just added on to the group. He's one of many gods that become a part of the worship of those people. It happens in New Age movement and more modern days. And it's happened in history when you combine Christianity or a form of Christianity with German nationalism and you end up with the slaughter of millions of souls because of a, an errant type of syncretism. It happens in American secularism when we think we can add Christian rituals to a secular materialistic life and just try to do good things and be better than other people. It happens in the American charismatic movement when we sort of try to bind together a form of Christianity with Western greed and you end up with a different gospel altogether. All of these are different types of what's called syncretism and the reality of the matter is they're all false gospels. Jesus Christ plus anything else equals a false gospel, a false religion, something other than Christian faith. So it's no surprise that early on in the life and ministry of Jesus, we see this type of thing beginning to happen with first century Jewish faith or first century Judaism. And it's that very reality that we're confronted with at the end of Luke chapter 5, when Jesus encounters once again this group of religious Jewish religious leaders called the Pharisees. We mentioned them a while back, uh, a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about, we ran across them in an earlier text, one of four religious factions that were present in, in first century Judaism. They were the separated ones. They were the meticulous o- obeyers of the law. They were the ones who were, who were dedicated to teaching the law in all of its minutia and, and imposing all of their man-made laws on top of God's law upon the people. 
And of course, they were the ones who could keep those laws the best because, in fact, they created most of them. Now, we've encountered these folks a few times already. Back in chapter 5, earlier in this same chapter, in verse 21, we're told the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And then shortly thereafter, in verse 30, we have the Pharisees and the scribes grumbling at Jesus' disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? We talked about that last week. And then here in verse 33 today, we find that they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And what we have here are these religious leaders who are following Jesus' ministry, and the more they see and the more that they hear, the more that they've become literally inflamed on the inside in in relationship to him. And the hostility has been growing bit by bit. The more Jesus says and the more Jesus and his disciples do, the angrier they get. And they continually confront him. And they continually critique his ministry. And as we get to this encounter at the end of chapter 5 that occurs likely either in very close proximity and in fact maybe at the same time or shortly thereafter the banquet in Matthew's house that we looked at last week or it could have happened sometime uh, in history later Luke doesn't give us a clear historical marker here but it seems to me that the context would lead us to think that this happens in pretty close proximity to the banquet that Jesus and his disciples enjoy in Matthew the tax collector's house with all the sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors and all the rabble rousers in town And so the Pharisees level critique at Jesus. As we walk through this text, we're going to read the words and we're going to see what they say and what Jesus says. But really underneath this, there's a series of critiques that they are leveling at Jesus that are not necessarily on the surface. They they maybe are a little underneath the surface of some of the images that that show up in the text. And so I want to make these critiques clear and I want you to see Jesus' clear answer to the critiques through the parables that he tells. Because they don't ask their questions really directly, and Jesus doesn't give them answers really directly. They ask it in sort of veiled language, and Jesus answers them in parables. But I want you to see clearly what their critiques are and what Jesus' clear answers are. And so that's how we've sort of going to frame the message this morning. So we begin in verse, actually backing up to verse 30, and then verse 33 and 34, and we see the first critique that these religious leaders are leveling at Jesus out of their, out of their fury at who he is and what he's been doing. Their first critique goes along the lines of this. They're saying to Jesus, you don't conform to our measures of piety. They have a problem with Jesus because he doesn't conform to their measures of piety. They have a real problem with this. We saw that really in our last text in verse 30 when they're grumbling and they're saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And then we see it in verse 33 and 34 where they say to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers and so the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Yours eat and drink. We're not eating, and your people are eating. Jesus, you don't measure up. You're not living by our measures of piety. Now, that word piety may not be a word that you use all the time, so I'll give you a definition for it. Piety is simply this, according at least to dictionary.com, reverence for God or devout fulfillment of religious obligations. 
They're saying, Jesus, you're not, you're not, you're not displaying what reverence for God truly looks like. You're not, you're not displaying, and your disciples are not measuring up to our definition of religious devotion and what godliness is supposed to look like. And the two issues that they have with him is that he and his disciples eat with sinners, and secondarily, that they don't fast like the Pharisees' disciples and John the Baptist's disciples. And of course, we looked at this a little bit toward the end last week, that the idea that no religious leader, no right-minded religious leader in first century Judaism would have ever sat down at a table and had a meal with sinners, with tax collectors, were people who lived lives with no regard for God. They would never in a million years have done that. They would have never engaged somebody like Matthew, who was a tax collector. They would have never stepped foot in his home, and they absolutely would have never had a meal with him, because in their minds, having a meal with somebody tacitly affirms their behavior, and it in, in, in sort of tacitly defiles you. In a second and third century letter called the letter of Aristius, it's a letter written by a man named Aristius describing the teaching of the, the rabbis of that particular time frame. And he says in his letter to his brother this, this is from a, a direct teaching from the rabbis of his time, to prevent our being perverted by contact with others or by mixing with bad influences, Moses hedged us in on all sides with strict observances connected with meat and drink and touch and hearing and sight after the manner of the law. That's what they believed, and that's what they had taught, and that's what they had inculcated in all of their followers. That if, you, that if you were faithful to God's word, you obeyed all these laws that separated you from lost people and separated you from certain kinds of food and certain kinds of drink. And so when Jesus comes along and he blows through all of that and he sits down at a table with a bunch of sinners and he enjoys a meal and he enjoys drinks and he enjoys food and he enjoys conversation, they are livid. Jesus, don't you know the rules? Godly people don't do things like that. If you're truly from God, there is no way you would ever behave like that. You would never fraternize with people like that. Only ungodly sinners do the things that you're doing. Nobody from God would ever do something like that. Jesus, you're not living up to our standards of piety. This wasn't an easy shift for the disciples either. They had grown up underneath this sort of same teaching. Even the Apostle Paul had difficulty taking the gospel to Cornelius, if you remember, a little later in the history of the church. Even after Jesus' death and resurrection, when God uh, sort of gives this vision to, to him and he shows him, look, it's not about foods. Every, all the foods that have been made are made by me and they're considered clean. And he calls him by way of a miracle to go to a, a sinner's house, a man by the name of Cornelius, a Gentile. And Paul goes there, and when he gets there, he's even hesitant at first to go in Cornelius' house. And, and in verse 28 of Acts chapter 10, he begins to speak to Cornelius and his family and all the other Gentiles who've gathered. And he says this, and he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit, visit anyone of another nation. We all know that this is unlawful, what I'm doing right here. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. When he says unlawful, he's not talking about God's law. He's talking about the law, the man-made laws that the Pharisees and the religious leaders had heaped on top of God's actual law. He 
He's saying, this is a hard thing for me. You know, like I know, that I'm not supposed to be doing this. The early Christian churches, even later on in the history of the church, struggled with it too. Paul writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, and he has to correct the same error. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Then he says, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you'd need to get out of the world altogether. But no, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he's guilty of sexually immorality, sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard or a swindler or not to eat with such a one. Paul has to write to the Corinthian church because they've fallen back into these old Jewish rules and regulations. And he's saying, wait a minute, you've misunderstood what I said. I didn't say that you're not to associate with lost sinners who live in the world and act like lost sinners. The people you're not to associate with and to attach your name to are people within the body of Christ who claim the name of Jesus and live like pagans. Because they defile the name of Jesus and you don't want anything to do with that. But lost sinners in the world? Go after them with the gospel. So even that far down in the history of the church, the Corinthian church is struggling with the real thing, what Jesus means and what Jesus was modeling. The religious establishment in first century Judaism was incredibly effective at teaching people that piety was a direct result of who you associated with. If you don't know how pious somebody was, just look who they hung around, and that'll tell you all you need to know. The truly pious person, they would say, longed to dine with the people who kept the law the best. What they were really saying to Jesus is this. If you were a truly religious, godly man, you'd want to have a dinner party with us, not with people like that. So they had this problem, Jesus, you don't, you don't live up to our measures of piety. But it wasn't just that, it was fasting as well. It's fasting as well. If you don't know what fasting is, I think we know about it. We've got all kinds of diets today that, that, that involve fasting, right? You understand fasting just means to go without food for a little bit of a time. In this context, it's as a religious, a piece of religious worship, to go without food, to stop eating in order to devote yourself to a religious end or a religious means. The Baker Encyclopedia says this, fasting is defined as eating sparingly or abstaining from food altogether, either from necessity or desire. In other words, you would fast in order to just stop eating for a season, to deprive yourself of food in order to give particular attention to prayer, in order to give particular attention to your relationship with the Lord. And in the first century, when, when this is being written and when this encounter takes place, there's a whole Old Testament backdrop of fasting. If we were to do this this morning, and we won't, we were to go through the Old Testament and we were to track the issues, uh, the sort of the context of fasting all throughout the Old Testament that would have been in the back of the minds of those who were on this encounter, you would understand that fasting in the Old Testament was quite often associated with mourning. It was associated with sadness and mourning. Largely, people fasted when they were broken over their sin or rebellion. Or when they were in mourning over some awful thing that had happened and they were praying to God that he would re re resolve the situation and help them. It was a context of sadness and mourning was when you would 
fast. 1 Kings chapter 27 is a good example of this. I'll just give you one. Verse 21, when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth on his, on his flesh and he fasted and he lay in sackcloth and he went about dejectedly. Esther chapter 4, Jonah chapter 3, other texts that you can look at to see that. But the reality of the matter was, in the Old Testament, guess how many fasts were required of Jewish people? You want to give me a guess? Hold up a number with your fingers. That counts as exercise, and I know you're awake. There was this many. One fast that was prescribed in the Old Testament that was required. It was on the Day of Atonement. All of Israel was required to fast, and breaking that fast was punishable by death. It was a day where the nation of Israel stopped and everybody fasted in order to sort of signify their repentance for their sin. The Day of Atonement was the only fast that was required by first century Jews. But of course, religious leaders had heaped man-made law upon man-made law upon man-made law and imposed all sorts of other fasts on the people and used them as a measure of godliness. And so fasting, by the time that Jesus has this encounter, was seen as a, as, a, as a sign of deep spirituality and a sign of self-denial. Someone who fasted often was seen as someone who was obviously very spiritual and very godly. And if you really wanted to display how pious and godly you were, you'd do what the Pharisees did. You would fast twice every week, every Monday and every Thursday. And you wouldn't just do it in your home. You would do it on a busy street corner where everybody passing by could see that you were fasting. And not only that, you wouldn't shave that day and you'd wear disheveled clothing and you'd carry a sour face on your, uh, on your, uh, on your face. Right? To let everybody who's walking by know how miserable you are because you love God so much. That's what they did. And they did it religiously. And they never missed a day. And, and so in that context, you've got Jesus coming along and his disciples and himself, they're not fasting on Mondays and they're not fasting on Thursdays. They're not on the street corners disheveled with a sour face. They're not out there letting everybody see how pious they are by fasting in public. What are they doing? They're building a reputation for parting it up with sinners. They're not, with, they're not abstaining from eating. They're indulging in eating and drinking with the lowlifes in town. And these guys can't believe it. Jesus, you're not living up to our measures of piety. You cannot be godly because you're not measuring up by our measures. Obviously, they stood out because of this. And so Jesus replies to these guys on both of those counts. And he replies to their critique by saying this God doesn't measure piety the way you do let that sink in for a minute because it's a very simple statement that might apply to more than just the Pharisees of the first century God doesn't measure piety the way you do how does Jesus lay this out for them He's saying to them, essentially in his response, he's saying to them this, your measures of piety are almost all, in fact they are all, external. 
They're all activities that are done and visible to the eye. But God's primary concern has never been about the external. His primary concern has always been about what's going on internally. His primary concern has always been about the heart. The religious leaders had defined godliness completely in terms of outward actions, and they didn't care, couldn't care less about what was going on in someone's heart. It was all about the do's and the don'ts. It was all about the godly people do this, and godly people don't do this, and if you did those things, you were considered godly, and if you didn't do the don't list, then you were considered pious. And they had mastered those lists. And Jesus comes along and he blows all that up. He blows it all up. He eats with the wrong people. It blows through the fasting. The truth of the matter is this. When a man or a woman's heart is right with God, when their heart is right, godly behavior and obedience naturally flow out in behavior. That has always been the bent of God's heart for his people. That in their hearts they would love him and be devoted to him and want to serve them with a whole heart. And when by faith they've embraced him and they're devoted to him, they don't have to worry about the list of do's and don'ts because obedience and godliness begins to grow up from the inside out. And it shows up in a life that reflects his character. And when that happens, it doesn't look like overkilling public fasting. And it doesn't look like seeing who can avoid the most sinners. What that kind of godliness and piety really looks like is it looks like compassion for sinners. It looks like a willingness to, to risk getting really close to filthy people in order to bring the gospel to them. It looks like knowing the right time and the right way to fast and not doing it just as a rote ritual that has absolutely no meaning. Godliness that's real and true and comes from the heart looks like honesty in dealing with other people. It looks like integrity of life where theology and, theology and behavior match up. It looks like living to please God rather than living to impress men. That's what God has always been concerned about, a heart that's devoted to him that flows with activity like that. That's what godliness looks like. It doesn't look like standing on the street corner with a sour face, going through a meaningless ritual just to impress other people. Religious rituals done out of habit with no heartfelt devotion are absolutely useless. Absolutely useless. They've never pleased God. They've always been useless and they always will be. Fasting as a rote weekly sort of ritual that doesn't that it doesn't have any association with a true brokenness or a true longing for God or a true seeking of God's face and hearing his voice is an absolute waste of time. Worse than a waste of time, it's an absolute affront to God. It's a mockery of God. Going to church can be the same thing. It doesn't matter what the religious ritual is, the first century or this century. When we go through religious rituals with no heart, that loves God, with no heart that's devoted to him, with no longing to see and to hear, to feel his presence, with no longing to hear from his word and be taught and to come under obedience to that, with no heart that overflows with joy at the salvation that he's brought to us through Christ, with no heart of gratitude that overflows in worship and praise, to do those things without all of that is just as worthless as fasting on a street corner with no heart of repentance to be seen. It's always been useless. And sadly, in our day, we tend to measure people by outward things just like the Pharisees did in the first century. 
don't we? Oh, well, it's a godly man or a godly woman. They go to church all the time. I went to their house there. There was a Bible there. They have a Bible. They must be, they must be pious people. That's what the first century religious Pharisees did. And what they heard from the Lord Jesus was God doesn't measure piety the same way you do. What a sad and pathetic state to be in. To be religious leaders with that kind of influence and to have taught this much to the people to hear God in person say to you, you set up a whole set of rules that have nothing to do with actual piety. And God doesn't measure things at all the way you do. Well, the first century Pharisees aren't the only ones, right? Today, it still happens. Men and women take the clear truth of God's word and they cherry pick favorite verses out of that, out of its context. They ignore the broader context and the broader contours of the Bible. They add their own spin to it on what godliness is supposed to look like and they then go to others and say, here's what faithful Christians would do. Faithful Christians would never do that. Mature Christians would never listen to that. They would never enjoy that. Serious believers would never associate with people like that. And they begin to categorize people and judge them on nothing more than their own self-defined externals. And oddly enough, when people do that, they always seem to measure others by things that they do well. You notice that? That's what the Pharisees did. If you're really godly, you do what I do. Friends, that is a, in reality, it's got a spiritual veneer on it, but what it really is, is a sick and twisted kind of pride. That's what it is. It's a sick and twisted kind of pride. It's an internal rot that's covered over with a spiritual layer of thin, weak, fake piousness or piety. Maybe it's a good time for us to stop and look at our own lives and ask the question, are there ways in which I overtly or subtly define piety in my own terms and impose it on other people? Are there ways that I've judged people by my standards rather than God's? Do I hold people to unfair and unreasonable expectations of godliness? How do I do that with my family? How do I do that with my friends? It's a serious question for us to ask. It's a serious question for church-going Americans in 2021 to ask. Do we do this to other people? If we do, then we're no better off than the Pharisees and the scribes of the first century. And if Jesus were standing before us, he would probably say to us exactly the same thing. God doesn't define piety the way you do. Oh, to God that we would define piety the way that he does. So Jesus answers their question, and their second critique is simply this. You're partying when you should be mourning. That's a second critique. You're partying when you should be mourning. That's underneath the fasting question that they bring. And so Jesus answers that, and he says this. Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. This is verse 34. And they will fast in those days. Critique number two. You're partying when you should be mourning. They're saying to Jesus and the disciples, instead of, instead of partying it up and yucking it up with sinners, shouldn't you be out here on the street corners with us? Shouldn't you be abstaining from food rather than indulging in dinner parties? And Jesus asks a very simple question that exposes their response. And what is his question? 
Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Now, isn't that a fascinating thing to say in response to this? After what does a wedding have to do with fasting? What does a wedding and a bride and bridegrooms have to do with a question about fasting? It really seems like an odd question to ask in relationship to that charge. Well, in the first century, weddings were a, a major celebration. They're still a major celebration in our day too, right? Right? I mean, I suspect when you got married, that was a celebration. Can I get an amen? You're still celebrating, right? Every day, bliss and joy. Nervous laughter in the room. In the first century, you celebrated for seven days. And the party was seven days long, and it was filled with food, and it was filled with flowing drink, and it was filled with laughter, and it was filled with dancing. And Jesus is saying, he's bringing up this concept or this picture of a wedding feast, right? A wedding party that's going on for seven days. And he says, would it be appropriate in a wedding feast with the bridegroom right there to be mourning? Is that who fasts and mourns at a wedding? Nobody does that. Well, maybe the dejected former lover who wishes he got the bride. Maybe he's mourning. But by and large, everybody at the wedding is celebrating. A wedding is a time for celebration. It's not a time for mourning. It's a time for joy and happiness, not a time for sadness. You know that about weddings. Let's be honest. Half the time we go to weddings, it's for the food, right? You know you do that, right? I like those people. Do I want to go to the wedding? I don't know. They're going to probably have good food. Let's go. All right, you're sitting in the ceremony like, all right, you do, you do. Come on, get this thing over. There's meatballs, you know? Got to get to those things. Nobody goes to a wedding to mourn. You go to eat. You go to drink. You go to dance. You go to do whatever you do at weddings. We're Baptists. We're not supposed to dance. So you can only do one foot, right? You can only do one foot and one hand, and that's not really dancing. You heard that from me. Jesus is painting a picture. He's giving them a, a clear image, a wedding. Nobody mourns and fasts when the bridegroom is there at the wedding, when the ceremony is going on and the groom is in the room. And so here's what Jesus is saying to them and bringing this up. Their critique is, their critique is you should be mourning instead of partying. And Jesus' answer to that is, you have no idea what time it is. You have absolutely no idea what time it is. The Old Testament backdrop is this. In the Old Testament, God was pictured as Israel's bridegroom. Isaiah 54, Jeremiah chapter 2, Hosea chapter 2, multiple other places in the Old Testament, God is pictured as Israel's bridegroom. And Jesus is making an analogy. He's painting this picture because he wants them to understand that he is God in human flesh. He is Israel's bridegroom, and he is present with them at that moment. In fact, the long-awaited Messiah has come, and he's right in front of you. This is not a time for mourning. This is not a time for fasting. This is a time for celebration. If you understood the times, if you understood what was happening right in front of you, Pharisee, you'd know that I am the Son of God in human flesh standing before you, and you have no business being on the street corner mourning. You should be celebrating with joy because the long-awaited Messiah has come. You have absolutely no idea what time it is. But because of their jealous prideful, sinful, rebellious hearts, they refuse to honor him as God. And their willful rebellion and willful blindness, they were trying to force him into their own rigid structures. 
trying to force people to mourn when it was time to celebrate. Well, Jesus' disciples understood. They were at least beginning to understand who he was. And they were beginning to understand that he is the Messiah and he's here. And it's no time for us to be mourning and fasting. It's a time for us to be joyful and to celebrate. Even if that means doing it around the table with someone like Matthew and his friends. By the way, here in the text, we have the first hint of Jesus' death. He says at the end of this, there's going to come a time when the bridegroom's going to be taken away. That's a shocking sort of a, of a picture here. I mean, in a real wedding, you don't celebrate, and then suddenly the bridegroom is snatched away and is gone. That would have been a very odd thing to have happened. What Jesus is saying to them is there's going to come a time when mourning is the appropriate response. There's going to come a time when it's going to be right to fast and to mourn when I'm gone. But while I'm here, it's time to celebrate. And so that's what we'll do. But you don't get it because you don't have any idea what time it is. Critique number three. He also told them a parable in verse 36. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it'll be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. Critique number three is this. The Pharisees are saying to him, you're not operating within the forms and the structures of our Jewish faith. And we have a problem with that. And so Jesus tells parables to them about sowing and about winemaking. These religious leaders were absolutely certain that the Messiah, when he came, that he would think and act just like they did. That he would long to go through the same rituals and to embrace the same religious structures that they had taught and that they had embraced. They just knew that when Messiah came, he was going to observe all the rituals just like them. That he was going to keep all the forms just like they have them. That he was going to enshrine all the traditions just like they had. He was going to operate within their system, follow their laws, worship just like they did. I mean, he might make some minor tweaks here and there, but to bring wholesale change, no way Messiah would never do that. There was no way that the Messiah would bring something altogether new. Jesus, you're not the Messiah because you're not operating with our forms and our structures. And Jesus' answer to them in giving these parables is simply this. You don't understand the new covenant. You've completely misunderstood the new covenant. And he uses two clear analogies to express this. Sewing, winemaking, sewing. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Now that's just, look, that, everybody understands that, right? Well, if you made your clothes, you would understand that. We buy our clothes and we largely don't patch them anymore. We just throw them away and buy new ones. But most of the world, even today, and in most of history, if you got a hole in your clothes, what would you do? You can say it out loud, it's okay. You patch it up, right? You'd get another patch from something else and you sew it over the hole and you're good to go. But any, any seamstress, you know, worth his or her salt, when they patch a hole, they would get a fabric that was of similar age and, and wear as the garment so that it would first of all blend in and not stand out like a sore thumb. And second of all, so that it would wash and wear the same as the surrounding fabric. 
If you were to go get a brand new garment, a brand new piece of cloth cloth that's never been washed, and you sewed it on a hole in your old washed and worn jeans, what's going to happen when you wash that sucker? That new fabric's going to do what? It's going to shrink up. But the jeans are not going to shrink up because they've already shrunk. Oh, they're going to shrink. And that patch is going to shrink up and rip away and be completely useless. Simple concept. You don't try to patch a hole in an old garment with new fabric. It won't match. It'll rip off, and you'll end up in worse shape. What is Jesus saying to them with his patches and garments? He's saying simply this. I'm not here to simply patch up your old system. I'm not here to be an add-on to your forms and structures. I'm not here to work within your system and to just reform it a little bit. I'm doing something altogether new. My gospel is not some add-on that people can just patch on to their current belief system, whether it's Judaism or Hinduism or American secularism or American greed or German nationalism or anything else. It's not a patch to put on something old. It's a new thing altogether that stands by itself. And the only way you're going to ever be saved and be a part of my kingdom is as if you recognize me as your Messiah, abandon all your efforts at self-salvation, and place your faith in me. Do away with your old and do something new. It can't be an add-on to your life. Christianity can't be an add-on to your life today. You can't just be the person you've always been and continue to live your life as you always have and just start going to church or start reading the Bible or start praying occasionally, start trying to to be a better person. The gospel of Jesus is founded on the reality that in order for a man or a woman to be saved, they have to renounce their life of self-salvation. They have to turn, repent, like we talked about last week, to turn from a life of self-salvation sufficiency, a life of self-salvation, of works-based faith, of just trying to do good and do better to be accepted by God. And you have to abandon that, throw it in the garbage, and embrace the Lord Jesus, recognizing that the only way that you can be made righteous and be reconciled to your Creator is by faith in what He's done on the cross through His shed blood for you. You've got to do away with the old and embrace the new. There's no way to just patch it on. And then he starts talking about wine. No one puts new wine in an old wineskin. Got any winemakers in the room? No? Okay. Maybe some homemade beer brewers, right? That's, that's, That's in vogue, I think. But no winemakers. Well, in the first century, when you made wine, you had to store it somewhere. And you didn't have big industrial vats. You didn't have the kinds of things that we had today. Plastic wasn't invented yet. So what did you do? Well, you were killing animals to eat them, so you would save the hide of a goat or sheep, pig. Save the hide, keep it whole, sew up the legs, and you'd use the the neck as a spout to pour your wine in. That sounds awesome, doesn't it? I was going to give you a picture, but all the pictures were pretty disgusting, and I thought, I'm going to gross them out right before lunch. But if you saw a wine skin, it it looked like an animal skin. You liked the animal. It went to feed holes tied off and the neck hole open they pour wine in and tie it off and it would age and ferment inside the the skin that's what happened 
And a new skin is what you put new wine in, and new wine skin was kind of like new leather today. It was pliable, and it would bend, and it would expand. And so when that, that grape juice would go in, it would begin to ferment, and the yeast would begin to turn the sugar into alcohol, and it would give off the carbon dioxide, and it would begin to puff up that wine skin because it was new wine skin. It was still moist and pliable, and it could expand, and it could hold that. But an old wine skin was like old leather today. It, it didn't give. It was brittle and it was dry and if you put new wine into that when it began to ferment and that carbon dioxide began to give off it would it wouldn't expand it would explode and your wine would go everywhere no you'd be a fool of a winemaker to put new wine in an old skin you'd have a big mess to clean up is what you'd have so what's jesus saying with that illustration he's saying listen my gospel can't be contained by your religious rigid structures it can't be contained what I'm doing is going to have worldwide effects it can't be held within your small little little controllable man-made structure it would bust clean out of your wineskin I'm doing something completely new you're right in critiquing me you're right in saying that I don't fit within your old structures because I don't your structure could never contain what I'm bringing to the world I'm bringing to the world the gospel that the little kid sang this morning that it's by grace that a man is saved through faith and not by works. It's a gift from God. If these men really took the Old Testament seriously, they would have known Jeremiah 31. Beginning in verse 31, God had promised that when the Messiah came, he was bringing a new covenant, that it wasn't a patch And it wasn't just a reform to be contained within first century Judaism, but it was new altogether. Listen to what God says through Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, coming, declares the Lord. You can mark this in your Bible. You should know this text. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. It's a new covenant. It's not like what? It's not like the old one not like the one I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. It won't be written on scrolls outside of them. It'll be written within them, and I'll write it on their hearts, and I'll be their God, and they'll be my people. I'll forgive their iniquity. I'll remember their sin no more. All the way back in Jeremiah's day, God was promising a new covenant. And Jesus is standing before these Pharisees and religious leaders, and he's saying by way of a story about wine and about sowing, I am the new covenant. I'm inaugurating the new covenant in my life and in my death and in my resurrection. And it's not just a patch onto your man-made system, and it can't be contained by it. Your only hope is to abandon it altogether and embrace me. Because there's no other name under heaven by which men can be saved but the name of Jesus. In Luke 22, verse 20, before his arrest and crucifixion, Jesus gathered at a table with his disciples to share a final supper, and he took the cup, 
after they had eaten, and he said this, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament, and he inaugurates a new covenant, a new covenant that's not based on external works, that's based on a heart that by faith embraces him as the true Messiah, the only means by which a man or a woman can be saved. The religious leaders couldn't handle it. When you're confronted with that reality, there are one of two choices that you have. You humble yourself, you fall before him and recognize who he is, and you plead with him to save you to forgive you, to embrace you as his child. Or you harden your heart and you get filled with fury and you determine inside that he has to be eliminated because he's a threat. What we're going to see as we walk through Luke's gospel is these religious leaders chose option B. But you don't have to choose option B. You can choose option A. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you need to. The way to him is not by doing more good things. It's not by coming to church more. It's not by reading more of your Bible. It's not by praying more. It's not by doing more religious things. It's not by pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps and just trying to live a better life, adding new habits and getting rid of old habits. It's about abandoning the idea altogether that you can somehow save yourself. And looking to the very cross of Jesus where he shed his blood and recognizing that that's the son of God hanging there. The perfect one died in my place. The only one who was truly good. And my only hope in my wretched state is that his blood and his death penalty and his payment would be applied to my account. And the only way that happens is for me to repent, turn away from my own self-salvation, and embrace him as my Lord and Savior, and bow before him, giving him my life from this day forward. If you haven't done that, you need to do that today. You can't just patch up your old life with Jesus on top. You have to turn and embrace him. Won't you do that? Lord Jesus, we are confronted with realities in this text this morning that are hard. We're told in, in our culture that we can be anything we want to be, that all we have to do is just try hard and we can achieve anything. We can be a doctor, we can be a lawyer, we can be a pilot, even be the president if you want to. In a culture where we're told that we can achieve anything by our ambitions and our work, it's hard sometimes for people to recognize that there's one thing we can't achieve for ourselves, a right relationship with you. That only comes by faith in your son and abandoning our own self-effort. Or if there's somebody in this room who's still trying to save themselves by being a better person, trying to patch Jesus on to their sinful life, Help them to see the foolishness of that. Help them to see it's just like trying to patch a garment with old garment with a new piece of cloth. It'll never work. 
draw them to abandon all that and embrace you today. And Lord, for those who've already embraced you or believers who've been walking with you for some time, Lord, we need to search our own hearts this morning. And we need to really consider in light of the text, how is it that we judge the piety of other people? Do we create unrealistic and unfair man-made expectations and judge other people by that? Do we measure piety in a whole different way than you do? If so, God, break our hearts this morning. Draw us to repentance and brokenness for that kind of a vile pride because it will rot us from the inside out. Help us to see that true godliness draws us toward the lost, not away. We pray that you would make these things a reality by your spirit, for your glory, and for your sake alone. Amen.